let's just go ahead and dive in. This, let's pretend uh, this is you, right? This is your life. This is, um, this is your personality. This is who you are. Um, and the deal with that is that it is shaped uh, who you are is shaped by a lot of different things. Now, I mentioned this in the sermon last week, but I thought I'd do it this week. Um, in your life, all this stuff happens, right? And, and there's good stuff and bad stuff that happens. And, and every time something happens, you have a choice. You have a choice to do what's right. You can do what's wrong. You can do somewhere in between. And those choices uh, create consequences, Right, And sometimes the consequences are good, and so you do it again. And sometimes, even though you know you shouldn't do it, the consequences aren't quite bad enough to make you not do it again, and so you do it again. Sometimes they are bad enough, and you don't. And each of these choices that lead to consequences create habits. By the way, I'm not destroying a slinky. That's just the way this came. But each of these habits lead to the way you live your life. And each of these habits creates these twists and turns in your life and in your personality that determine really, really how you see the world around you. And they create a pattern of how you live your life. So much so that this is true, I think, that our habits determine the way we live our life, the choices you make, the consequences from those choices, and the habits that they create determine how you live your life. And it creates all these, all these twists and turns in your personality that determine how you see the world around you, how you see yourself, and how you see each other. And so as this bottle continues to fill up, this wire is taking the shape of this bottle. And it's creating what, what some people would call your personality. It's creating who you are. And the question that I have is this. As you have all these habits that were created by choices that made consequences, the question is this. Do you like the habits that you have? Do you like all your habits? All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go a little bit more, right? Do you like all your habits? Because I would imagine that you're like me, and the answer is no, right? That there's some of these habits, there's some of these twists and turns um, that were created, I need my space, that were created that you just don't like, right? There are some of these things that I, I saw you, I'm not gonna point it out, but when I said you did something that you know was wrong, but yet the consequences weren't bad enough to not do it again, some of you understood what I was talking about. So do you want to change your habits? Do you want to experience life change? Because see, this is what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about how to experience life change change, how to change your habits. But to do this, we need to clear up a, a common misconception about life change. 
Because somewhere along the way, most of you in this room met Jesus. You, you heard the gospel, right? You, you heard the good news of the gospel like we talked about last week, that, that because of what Jesus has done, your sins have been paid for. And so now you have this good and right, intimate, uh, personal relationship with the God who created you and the God who loves you. And, and you came to a place where you believe that this relationship is based on what Jesus did, not on what you've done. And you've experienced what's called salvation. That's what salvation is. It's, it's being saved from this desire and being saved from this belief that you can control God, that you can control the way that he sees you. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you're putting your faith in what Jesus did to earn this relationship with God. You realize you can't earn it in and of yourself. When you did that, something happened. Okay, this is the experiment. Full disclosure, there is a Ziploc bag in here too because when I practiced it, the paper bag didn't hold up quite as well as I expected. All right, so, so what happens when you come to know Jesus as your Savior is there is this identity change in you, right? Before Jesus, who you were was determined by a lot of things. It was determined by what others said about you. It might have been determined by how much money you have in your bank. It might have been determined by what job you had, by what school you went to, by what school you're going to, by what friends you have. Your identity was determined by what you thought about yourself. But when you accept Christ, that identity changes. Because like the song that we sang, you are a child of God. And your identity changes. And so, so what happens is this. That'll work. Right? Your identity changes. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice what didn't change. Right? Even though your identity changed, Come on now. What didn't change, now if this wasn't stretched by the Ziploc bag that I used to protect the bag, this is still the shape of the bottle, at least it should be. This is where, this is where you know, experiments are experiments. But, I mean, you still get the point, right? Even though your identity changed, the way you see the world changed, the way you see yourself changes, what hasn't changed is your habits. That these twists and turns and these choices and these consequences that led to those habits are still there. And you see, there's this, there's this misconception that, that, that like a country song backwards, once you know Jesus, everything becomes great. Right? Because, you know, if you play a song backwards, you get the, your truck back and your dog back and your wife back and everything else. And there's this conception that once you know Jesus, life change just happens. But here's what we're going to see today, is that salvation guarantees many things. It guarantees you are a citizen of heaven, is what Paul's going to talk about today. It guarantees that your identity has changed. It guarantees the way God sees you. It guarantees many things, but it doesn't guarantee life change. It doesn't guarantee these habits that you don't like anymore are gonna change. That this process of life change, this, this process of those habits 
and those twists and those turns and, and those habits that were formed by, by choices that, that led to consequences, that, that for that to change, something has to be different, right? And so you've got this new relationship with Christ and that's, and that's called salvation, but this process of life change, of these twists and turns being made straight again and even better than being made straight, they take on the identity of Jesus because that's what sanctification is. If you remember when we talked about sanctification, we talked about how when you become saved, your identity changes and, and how God sees you changes and that's how God sees you. Your neighbor might see something else, right? How your neighbor sees you is called sanctification. And it's the process of your behaviors beginning to match your identity. And so instead of, instead of those twists and turns that make up your life, you, you start becoming something else. That your identity and, and behaviors start to match up. And so instead of, instead of a, a twist and turn of chaos, maybe... Just maybe, this is where there are artists in my house and I'm not one of them. But maybe, just maybe your life begins to take on the shape of something else. Maybe your life begins to take on the shape of your new identity in Christ. And you instead of this chaos and twist and turning, we'll just do this. Y'all get the point. Right? You begin to have this cross in your life. And your behavior begins to match your identity. But the question that we're going to talk about today is how does this process of life change, this process of sanctification, this process of habits changing? How do I experience real life change? How do those twists and turns and behaviors change to match your identity in Christ? Well, today we're going to see the answer to this question of how your habits change. How does sanctification work? We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in verses chapter 3, verse 12 through chapter 4, verse 1. If you need a Bible, there's some in front of you. It's on page uh, 817. Um, if you use the Bible, that's in front of you. Or you can also download the Bible app, and we're under there. If you click on Fellowship Ash or click under Events and then Fellowship Asheville, the scripture is there today uh, and questions to consider afterwards. And as we're working our way through this series in Philippians, we're calling it Eclipse because what Paul is telling this church in Philippi is to experience the joy of the Lord. It's one of those words, joy, that's mentioned 14 to 16 times in this book. And it's a theme of this book. But, but what he's telling these Philippians and what we're seeing time and time again is that there are these little things in our life that can actually eclipse the joy of the Lord available to us. Just like an eclipse works, how the moon, something small, covers the, the light of something big like the sun, these little things in our life can eclipse this joy available to us in our Jesus-bought relationship with God. And today, what we're going to see, church, is that if you have the wrong view of how to change your habits, if you have the wrong view of life change, it will eclipse the joy available to you in the Lord. Because what we're going to see is that when you work with Jesus and experience the life change he has for you, there is joy in that process. Now, how many of you think joy and change should be in the same sentence? Because a lot of us don't. Maybe that's because you have the wrong view of life change. So let's look. Let's look and see what Paul says. 
In verse 12, so in in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says this, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect. And so what's the this that Paul is talking about? In last week's sermon, the the few verses right before this kind of highlighted three areas of the Christian life. One is is salvation and justification, uh, which Paul said is secure, and he repeats that over and over and over again in multiple multiple letters that he's written. Uh, And then the last part was on glorification, about being in heaven. Paul's gonna say that's secure. And later on in this, these verses today, he's gonna tell us that we are citizens of heaven already. So that's secure. That middle part, sanctification, the process of your behavior matching your identity, this is what Paul is gonna expand on and talk about. And it's what he says uh, that he hasn't already obtained this. You see, we know he's not talking about salvation because he's already obtained it. We know he's not talking about glorification, about heaven, because he's gonna say in a few verses that you've already obtained that. And so it's this process of sanctification that Paul is gonna talk about. How do we experience life change? That's the this that Paul is talking about. So verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And so, so this is the idea that Paul is, is, is taking this, this process of sanctification, changing habits, life change, and this is what he's focused on. And he wants us to know that this change of his life in Christ to match his identity in Christ is a process. And what he's gonna do, and this is key, y'all, because he's gonna connect sanctification to salvation. He's gonna connect how you change your habits to the fact that Jesus has changed your identity. Now, he never says they're guaranteed. As a matter of fact, he shows us that this is a process. This is a process. Look at the rest of verse 12. It says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Now get this, here's Paul's thinking. He's saying, listen, Jesus changed me. Jesus Christ made me his own, that I am his prized possession, just like the church in Philippi was, because that's what he's telling them. Just like you are in Jesus, you are his prized possession. He made you his own. And Paul's saying that because Jesus made me his own, because Jesus changed me, I can change. Because Jesus made me his own, I get to make this life with Christ, my own. That salvation doesn't guarantee sanctification, but they are connected. And here's Paul's point, that our sanctification, our ability to experience life change, our ability to change those habits that you nodded your head about, that our sanctification flows from our salvation. Salvation doesn't guarantee your sanctification, but you can't have sanctification without salvation because it flows from your salvation. Now, I'll explain what this means as we go, that this ability to experience real life change flows from this change that Jesus has made to you and me. Because you see, there's a few thoughts in the church on how we change, and this is part of that misconception because there are some people that take salvation and sanctification and they separate them. Right, And they say this, yes, Jesus saved me and he drew me in and he made me his own, but now it's up to me if I wanna experience life change. They pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they just say, if we're gonna live this Christian life, I'm gonna live it, by golly. It's a good word, isn't it? I haven't heard by golly in a while. I haven't actually said by golly in a while until today. 
But if they go on Amazon, their favorite books are the self-help books, right? Because they realize if life change is gonna happen, they better do it themselves. And they read every self-help book that they can. The problem is oftentimes Jesus is left out of the equation. And oftentimes they're left joyless in their life change. Now another, another way is, is they don't separate sanctification and salvation. Um, they, they pull them together too tightly, I think. That just like Jesus is 100% responsible for my salvation, Jesus is also 100% responsible for my sanctification. That Jesus is the one that's gonna change my habits, not me. And their favorite meme is the guy where, who, who's, who's going, uh, the escalator's going up and he keeps falling down it, but yet he keeps going up as he's falling down. They love that one because they say, that's me, I'm a sinner And God is the one that has to change my habits. He's the one that's got to take me up the stairs. When they go on Amazon, their favorite books are the commentaries. Because they believe if I know God's word better, I will change. Now here's what happens with them. They have all the right answers, but they still keep doing the wrong thing. Right? They, can, they can parse a verse. They can explain deep theology and they can quote authors from various viewpoints on it. But yet at home, they still have a violent temper. At home, there's still a, a rebellious spirit in them where they complain about their boss, they complain about their work, that they're just not joyful. And church, I think what Paul is showing us here is that neither of these are the correct view of how you change your life. Neither of these are the correct view of how you change your habits. They're not the correct view of sanctification. I think what Paul is getting at is that because Jesus made me his own, I press on to make it my own. I press on to make sanctification my own. I press on to understand the depths of my salvation. And so, so I think Paul's view would be something like this. Jesus saved me and by his power change is possible. I think Paul would say this is a, a, a way that if I'm going to experience life change it is Jesus and me working together on this that it is me working with Jesus. You see, Paul's not saying that for his habits to change, it's all up to God, nor is he saying for his habits to change, it's all up to him. He's saying that he can experience life change because Jesus is changing his life. That's why he says this in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have already made it my own. In other words, he's saying, listen, y'all, church in Philippi, church in Asheville, I'm still growing. I'm still, I've still got habits to change. But look at this piece of advice that Paul gives here. Because I believe it'll do the Philippian church, it did them well. I believe it'll do us well too. Look at the rest of verse 13. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Now, how many of you, how many, any professional runners in here? Okay, there were a couple in first service. I'm definitely not one. Um, But what I've learned from professional runners is that when they are running a race, there is one thing that they never, ever do. Unless you're like one of the people in the first service, they do it to mock. But they never look back. And she was serious. She mocks the people behind her. (laughs) Probably not the best thing. But, you know, if you're that far ahead and you're lapping them, I guess you can. Um, But a professional runner never looks back to see who's chasing them. You know why? Because if they do, they just might miss a step. They might trip over their own feet. They might step in another person's lane. They might do the worst of all possible things and actually fall. And depending on how close the competition is, they can go from first place to last place just by making one simple mistake of looking back. Paul's advice here is that because your sanctification flows from your salvation, you don't need to look back. You don't need to lose focus. You don't need to lose balance. You don't need to fall. And so here's the deal. In changing your habits, you know what you will always do? You will fail. Paul failed. Paul made mistakes. Paul messed stuff up. Paul is saying he's not perfect that he sinned, and guess what? So do you, so do I. We all stumble, we all falter, we all fail. Y'all, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna give you a hint now, and then I'm gonna tell you how it resolved later, but you know, it's a big day for us. Fellowship Weaverville is launching, and I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm a little jealous. They got all the new stuff. Right? I remember when the entire church fit around one table and it was beautiful. And I got jealous. And the way that came out was just, just my own complaining about choices made here, choices made there. Well, I would make it different, you know, if I was doing it. You know, if it was back in the day. 10 years ago, when we church planted right, this is what it would look like, right? Isn't that ugly? Like, I get what Paul's talking about here, about looking forward and and, and, and dealing with that that heart and dealing with that failure. Because I gotta tell you, the sin that bounces around in my heart, I can complain, I can gripe, I can gossip and lie and lust, and I can be unloving and I can be impatient and I can be unkind. And like all of that is before I brush my teeth in the morning, right? Like that's what bounces around in my heart. But here's what Paul wants us to do. Paul wants us to remember something. And are y'all ready for what Paul wants you to remember? He wants you to remember that you are already forgiven for the sin you commit. You don't have to look back. You are forgiven. And not only are you forgiven for the sin that you committed this morning, the sins you committed last night, you're forgiven for the sins you're gonna commit tomorrow. You know how I know? Jesus isn't planning on being crucified again. You are forgiven. 
That's Paul's point. Yes, you're gonna fail. As you, as you struggle to change these habits, as you struggle to experience life change, it is gonna be joyful, but you know what? You're still gonna make mistakes. You're still gonna sin. You're still gonna mess things up. But what did Jesus do with that? That stuff is this broken glass here. It is done. Anybody want a bag of broken glass to identify your life? No, no. Jesus has dealt with that. Which means this, does that mean that you need to confess your sins? Yes. In the book of James, James says, confess your sins one to another so that you may be what, church? Healed. That there is something good and holy when, when God convicts you of sin, that you confess it to him as sin and you repent of it, and then you confess it to each other. And then if you have sinned against someone, you go to them and ask for forgiveness Right, Because forgiveness flows from person to person. God's forgiveness has been dealt with in Jesus Christ. But if I sin against you, I need to come to you and say, hey, what I did was sin. Will you forgive me? I need to confess it and I need to repent of it and we move forward in unity. All of that doesn't negate the fact that you have been forgiven. And because you've been forgiven, Paul says you can actually run the race set before you without being chased or chained to the sins of your past. You, have, you are free. As the song said, you are free indeed. You are free to run forward because Jesus has forgiven your past. Now, here's the deal. Some of you are sitting out there going, yeah, but... You don't know what I did. Or yeah, but that sounds too easy. I've got to do something to show God that I'm grateful for his forgiveness. I've got to do something to prove that I've been forgiven. Paul anticipates that. He anticipates this, this grace, this, this grace that some theologians mistakenly call easy grace, which I think it's not easy, it wasn't easy for Jesus. Yes, it's easy for us. It wasn't easy for him. As a matter of fact, when I was in seminary, that was one of the, the questions, is, isn't that too easy? And as a person that I went to seminary with that coined the phrase, listen, if it doesn't sound too good to be true, it's really not the gospel, because the gospel sounds too good to be true. And Paul anticipates that, and this, look at what he says in verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. In other words, listen, if this sounds like too much, it's okay. Let it simmer. Just, just, just let, it, let it rest for a little bit. It's okay. Let it soak in. He's like, I know it's a lot to handle. Yes, you are that forgiven that you don't have to look back anymore. But until then, verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And I love this about Paul because he is this apostle, right? He's the guy writing the instructions to how the church is gonna function. And he very easily could say, you know what? Actually, guys, I'm gonna demand that you believe this. I'm gonna, I want you to put this in the bylaws of the church. This is gonna be the new commandments that Paul gives to you. And it is you will live forgiven. He doesn't. He says, listen, I know this may be a lot to handle, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold to the truth that you know. Hold to the gospel. 
Hold to the fact that Jesus' death made a way for you to have a good and right and personal relationship with the God who loves you and the God who created you. And if that's all you can hold on to, hold on to that. Because here's what he knows. If you hold on to that, any lasting life change will come from this gospel. Because see, he knows that sanctification flows from salvation. Whether you know it or not, that's the way God has designed it. And if you just rest in the gospel, if you just rest in the fact that Jesus died for you, your life will begin to change. So he's kind of sneaky that way, isn't he? He's kind of leading you there. Because he's trusting that those in Philippi will experience the same life change that he has because they have the same gospel that he has. And if this process of, of changing habits doesn't set well with them, he's telling them, just rest in the gospel. For your salvation will flow from your sanctification. Just rest in the gospel. Because there you'll find the power that you need to change. And then he's going to give them some practical ways to do this too. He's going he's to come at them like this, just rest in the gospel. And he says, as a matter of fact, let's do this. In verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In another book, another letter that he wrote called 1 Corinthians, he tells the church in Corinth, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And here in Philippians, he's telling them the same thing. He's saying, listen, there are people whose faith is worth imitating. There are people that you know here in, in the church in Philippi or here in the church of Asheville, here in the church in Asheville or there in the church in Weaverville that there are people who have a faith that's worth imitating, that they have experienced this life change. They have experienced sanctification. They are experiencing sanctification. They, they have experienced these change in habits. And he's saying their faith is worth imitating. And the reason he's saying that is because if you imitate their life and if you sit down and go, okay, I need you to tell me. How in the world have you learned to take time to pray? He knows that they're gonna say, maybe in different words, but they're all gonna say the same thing. They're gonna say this. They're gonna say, I've learned to take time to pray because Jesus changed my life. And really, it's only by his power that change is possible. And they may use different words to say it, but they're all gonna say the same thing. And so can I tell you what this looks like in real time? With our staff and even with key volunteers, a lot of times I'll ask them, how are you doing? And it's funny the answers I get. The first answer I get is always what? Yeah, it's, it's okay, it's fine, it's, it's, it's good or well if they're, you know, more uh, grammatically inclined. And then I say, okay, so how are you really doing? And then I get a wider range, a wider range of answers. I get, ooh, I'm tired, or I'm excited. I get, I'm bored, or I'm really busy. I might get, I'm fulfilled in what I'm doing, or I might get, I'm feeling really empty in what I'm doing right now. And then I ask a question to help kind of clarify matters. And I think it drives home the point of what Paul is saying here, and it's this is I ask them, so, so tell me right now, are you working for Jesus or are you working with Jesus? 
as you're trying to do your job, as you're trying to experience life change, are you working for Jesus? Are you working with him on this? Because see, when you're working for Jesus, here's what it feels like. It feels like you've got a work to do and it better get done. Because if you don't do it, nobody else is going to. Doesn't that sound joyful? Right? Deadlines create anxiety. I'm never gonna be able to get this done in time. To-do lists become obligations. There's no way I can do all this today. There's no way I can do all this this week. There's no way I can do everything on my to-day list this month. There's no way. A schedule becomes drudgery. When you wake up and look at your schedule for the day, you think, I've got to do all this. Jesus becomes your master and you become his servant. And I don't mean like in a wash your feet kind of servant way. I mean like Jesus becomes one to you who barks orders. Life change becomes a task to be accomplished. None of this is joy. But working with Jesus everything changes. When you work with Jesus, he's not a master barking orders. He's a leader working beside you. Like like Nehemiah, in the book of Nehemiah, God charged him to build this wall and, and he walked with God as he did it. But when you see Nehemiah as a leader, you see not only great leadership qualities, but you see a picture of how Jesus leads his church and Nehemiah wasn't on top of the tallest building with a, with a bullhorn telling people to work. He was side by side, shoulder to shoulder, building the wall with them. And when you work with Jesus, he's not a master barking orders at you. He is a leader working beside you. That's what the whole word with means. When this happens to do lists, they become a list of opportunities instead of obligations. You don't got to do them, you get to do them. Deadlines become goals to be celebrated. Whether you meet them or not, they become, they become these, these opportunities of celebration instead of sources of anxiety. Schedules fill your day with divine appointments instead of drudgery. That's what working with Jesus feels like. And working with Jesus, this real and lasting life change is possible. It means when Jesus speaks to you, whether through his word or through his voice or through another brother or sister in Christ, and says it's time to change this, you go, okay, Jesus, let's change this. When Jesus says, I need you to stop doing this, you say, okay, Jesus, let's stop doing that. When Jesus says, I need you to start doing this, you say, okay, Jesus, let's start doing that. And like in me, when, when, when struggling with this jealousy over Fellowship Weaverville, which y'all was so stinking petty, right? It was such an eclipse over something great that God was doing. And, and oftentimes, I'll, I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of like the 10-minute power nap. Like literally, if you come into my office around 3.30 or come near my office, you might hear me snoring for about five minutes because I'm a big believer in it. And a lot of times I will be praying as I lead into that nap or I'll be working on a message because I, God speaks to me during that time, whether it's in a dream or a vision, I have no idea. But there are times 
where, where God speaks. And, and, and I was thinking through Fellowship Weaver. And y'all, I'm gonna tell you, I wasn't acknowledging the fact that I was jealous because I didn't know that I was. I was acknowledging and praying for everything that I thought was going wrong, which literally was nothing on the grand scale of things. But yet I was complaining as I, to God as I was falling asleep. And I'm a visual person and I had this picture of this oak tree right? Like the oak tree down in Charleston. Have y'all seen that thing? What's it called? Is it called the angel tree? What's it called? Angel oak. It is this huge gargantuan oak with, with, with that's hundreds of years old. And in my dream, it was like that. It was this beautiful oak tree. And there was a group of people cutting a limb off of it, like this big, hardy limb. And I kept thinking, they're gonna kill the tree. Like they're not even using proper technique, like I'm some arborist to know that. But I was just standing there complaining. They don't know what they're doing there. They're messing it up. This tree's not gonna be the same. It's this beautiful tree. Why are they missing with it? And in this, in this dream, in this picture, I realized that there was a fence between me and that tree, that that tree wasn't even on my property. And yet, I was complaining about it and telling them how to do it. And immediately, I woke up, and I knew exactly what God was saying, that he's building his church, and it's on his property, not mine. And I have no right to complain. My job is to look and celebrate what God is doing. Because here's the truth. When you cut back a tree, what ha- when you prune back a tree, what happens? Growth. More life happens. My complaining wasn't just complaining. It was jealousy and it was wrong and I confessed it to God. I'm confessing it to y'all and I immediately repented of it. And the things that I complained about really did become points of celebration. I got excited about Fellowship Weaverville. I am genuinely excited about Fellowship Weaverville because more people are gonna hear the gospel. More people are gonna be discipled. More people are gonna understand how God made them beautiful and how God doesn't just love them, but God likes them. And it's gonna change them and it's gonna change that city and it is amazing. And that was done in an instant. But there's other things where God says, you need to change this and you go, okay, well, let's change this. And it takes a while. One of the things God is working on me right now is to speak the truth. Now, I don't lie, but I do sculpt the truth from time to time. And here's when I do that. And I'm working with counselors on this, and they're helping me so much in identifying this. Because I am a people person, and I've told you all that, and you all know that. But here's what they've helped me to understand. I, you can, you can, criticize me as a person and I just brush you off because I'm very secure in who I am, right? And I'll be like, either you're right or you're wrong and move on. But when you criticize my work, I lose it. And if you ask me a question and I don't have time to think through the answer and I don't have time to process the answer, I will inadvertently uh, unintentionally at first, but now that I'm noticing it, I think it's more intentional than, it, than I thought. But I will tell you an answer that I think will make you think I'm choosing the right thing. Does that make sense? Like I will tell you an answer that I think will make you happy, whether it's the right answer or not. And what these counselors are helping me to do is to slow down 
because I value the truth and I want to speak the truth. And what I'm learning is if I'm doing what James, hello, in the Bible says to be slow to speak, I think he put that there for a reason, me, that I speak the truth. Now, it's interesting, I don't compromise scripture when I teach. Why? Because it takes me 10 days to prepare a message. It takes time. I don't compromise the truth in a counseling session. If you've been in a counseling session with me, you know I speak the truth there. But there's this little space in my life where God is saying, Fred, it's time to change this. And I'm saying, okay, Jesus, let's change this. And there's joy there. And there's time. So just so you know, if you ask me a question and I say, give me a couple of days to think about that, that's why. I've got a truth coming for you. (laughs) I got the truth hopefully coming for you. And it's better for all of us. I had a person after the first service come up to me and she's like, Fred, I want you to know I like you better when you're honest with me. Who knew? (laughs) Right? But Paul's also saying, be careful who you watch. Even in the church, there are people whose faith isn't worth imitating because for whatever reason, they're changing their life for their benefit. Look at this in verse 18. He says, uh, for many of us, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So there's some people, even in the church, there are some people who, who will try to lead you, but they're leading you for their own selfish ambition. For whatever reason, they're leading you to make themselves better, to make themselves, to make their bellies full to, to, for their own means and all that stuff. And Paul's saying, listen, don't follow them. Follow these people. In verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, listen, all of you have been issued a passport, Right, And that passport to the Philippian church doesn't say Philippi. To those here in Asheville, it doesn't say America. You have been issued this spiritual passport, and it has heaven written on it. And your passport has already been stamped, and you are ready to walk through the gate. You're just waiting to be deployed. That your home is actually in heaven. And the people that you imitate, they have the same passport you do. That's the people you imitate. The people who have that stamp in their passport and they're just waiting to be deployed like you. And then Paul's final words on the topic are this, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus. In other words, stand firm in this truth. In the Lord, my beloved, Stand firm in this gospel. Stand firm in this fact that for your life to change, you stand in the gospel and you and Jesus change your life together, that you work with Jesus, not for Jesus. You stand firm in that. Now, let me ask you a question. In this bag, like I said, Ziploc bag, it's a bunch of broken glass. Now, if I were to take this glass and sprinkle it out across the floor, how many of you would wanna stand firm on that? No. Why? Because it's done. But yet, we do. We think, God, you can't forgive me for this. 
It's broken glass. It's done. Right? You are forgiven. And here's what I know to be true. Jesus right now is working on you to change something. He's working with you to change something. He wants you to work with him to change something. And oftentimes in life, we get so busy, we don't hear him. I think that's why God speaks to me when I'm half asleep. Because it's when I'm finally quiet and still. Right? We're gonna do that for just about 30 seconds here. (laughs) Maybe a little bit longer. Because I don't want us to miss this opportunity to be still before the Lord. And I'm going to start us off in prayer, and I want you to listen to what the Spirit of God might say to you of what do you need to work with Jesus on? And then your answer is, okay, Jesus, let's do that.